Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Last summer, Emily Spoliar, Pheasants Forever's precision ag and conservation specialist in North Dakota, joined me on this podcast for a terrific conversation with Jennifer Riley about being a new bird hunter, a person new to bird hunting, and living in Alaska. That conversation served as the catalyst for Emily's very own adventure to Alaska this past March. You heard me right. She was bird hunting in March. In today's episode, we're going to learn about Emily's Alaskan bird hunting adventure, as well as some tips from a couple of local Anchorage, Alaska residents, Jesse Janowski and Peter Wadsworth, a couple that live in Alaska and hunt uh, birds in Alaska from skis and snowshoes with their German short-haired pointers. So without further ado, in the spirit of Johnny Horton, let's go north to Alaska with Emily, Jesse, and Peter. Thanks for joining this episode of On the Wing Podcast. We're, we're in Minnesota. We're in North Dakota and we're in Alaska. This, the world of 2022, right? Right. We're all getting pretty good at this, Bob. <laughs> yeah. We well, thank you for making time. Let's let's start with Emily. I think Emily, this is your I want to say it's your fourth podcast, maybe fifth, because we did a, a couple of them on Rooster Road Trip this year. But for folks, just you know, the Alaska word it was the hook. Uh, introduce yourself to our, our listeners today. Thanks, Bob. Uh, I'm Emily Spoliar. I'm a precision ag and conservation specialist in southwest North Dakota. So in short, I work with farmers and landowners to help them put habitat on the landscape. Um, love what I get to do alongside our chapters and partners here in North Dakota. Uh, yeah, last time I was on this podcast, it was Rooster Road Trip, and you were here in my house <laughs> <laughs> after we had just gotten done um, busting some cattails on a on a WPA. So um, good to be back on here and and to be talking with you again. <laughs> well, in in maybe two times before that, we were with Riley, mm -hmm. who at the time was known as Nuclear Flower on Instagram. And um, so that led to this this trip you had to Alaska and where you met Peter and Jesse. So why don't you introduce Peter and Jesse and how how you came to know the two the the two guests here today? Sure. Um, yeah, so so this trip, I started out planning it with Riley, like you mentioned. She threw out the offer as people often do of, if you ever want to come out and hunt sometime, just let me know. And um, I took her up on that. Uh, she was a wonderful host. I spent a week um, with her, started out in Anchorage, which is where we met up with Jesse and Peter uh, through a mutual friend, Scott Johnson, um, who was also an internet connection. <laughs> These were all people I had never met before in real life, just through social media. 
Uh, and it, it, it worked out. I couldn't have asked for a, a better trip. It was incredible. Um, it was an amazing reminder that our community of upland hunters um, are just the most generous and kind people that you could want to be around. Um, and on top of that, they had great dogs also. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was, it was a perfect trip. I got to shoot uh, spruce grouse and a bunch of ptarmigan and see great dog work and experience an incredible landscape and um, learn how to snowshoe and cross-country ski. And <laughs> I fell a lot, but it was a lot of fun. So we'll we'll come back because I want you to tell more of the adventure, but we'll introduce our, our featured guests, uh, Jesse Janowski, Peter Wadsworth. Let's start with Jesse. Um, where are you? A na Alaska native? Where are you from? No, not at all. So I grew up in northern Vermont on a farm, and we moved to Alaska. What did we decide, Peter? Twenty sixteen. Sixteen. Twenty sixteen. Um, yeah. Once I finished school, so I am an orthopedic hand surgeon. And that's 26 years of school. So wow. <laughs> once we finally finished that, uh, we got a chance to choose our next adventure. And that's what brought us to Alaska, the chance to be in a wonderful, really wild place with a ton of uh, public land and gave us a chance to explore. Hmm. Um, so did, Peter, did you grow up in Vermont too? No, I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, right oh. on the Connecticut border. Yeah, about as far from any of this as you can possibly get. Yeah. So, why Alaska? What like you you hear things that if you want a job in Alaska, like there's no problem going finding a job in Alaska and going to move. Is that realistic? Like there's there's a need for all sorts of professions. I think you're asking a pretty biased group here, you know, from yeah. myself to Peter to our friend Scott Johnson, um, all of us, we decided to move to Alaska and jobs fell into place pretty easily. Um, okay. Would everyone agree? Certainly not. And, mm. you know, with the economy, there are ebbs and flows, of course. Um, but if you want to be here and your sense of adventure is ready to, for the challenge, absolutely. Huh. Huh. Yeah. For people who want to work hard and rough, there's definitely always work in Alaska. <laughs> and, and Peter, what um, if you're what lucky you enough for... to be a surgeon, there is also work in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesse's a surgeon. Peter, yeah. what do you do for a living? Uh, I was a mechanical engineer for a lot of years in New York City and San Francisco and Hong Kong and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I've been fortunate to be a house husband for the last few years here uh, in Alaska because my job actually doesn't exist up here. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, the type of work I was doing is is there's oil and gas up here, but I'm not mm -hmm. that kind of engineer. Um, okay. So right now I am uh, I'm focused on taking care of my wife. And that's, that's pretty good. And I'm mediocre at it. I haven't been fired yet, <laughs> but I also didn't go to college for it. So it's been really tough. <laughs> yeah. and, and were you both bird hunters and dog owners before moving to Alaska or was that oh, no. new development? Really? Not at all. So um, one of the things that led us towards hunting in Alaska is growing up in Vermont, 
everything I ate was either produced by the land or produced by neighbors. And when you move to Alaska, the majority of the meat in our markets is from very far away. Hmm. So we looked at that and had a sense of what are, what are we doing? Why are we trucking chickens 2000 miles up here? And Alaska has so much public land. It led us to look into hunting at that time when we arrived in Alaska, we had a rescue dog that I still believe had a great deal of pointer in him because he pointed and that watching a dog go on point sort of was a light bulb for me. Wow. Mm. This is what they were bred to do. And I have to see that more. Mm. So from there, we got two young GSPs and are working on trying. We went from pound puppy (laughs) to two full bred high octane GSP. Just (laughs) just gonna chime in there. So so you're really your dog trainer right now, Peter. Um, (laughs) I sort of help. Jesse is really the dog trainer. I try to support. I do a lot of the other stuff. I've I've done some in the very beginning, but uh, she has quickly. Uh, excelled way past me uh, in what she can do with the dogs. So you talked about like going to Alaska and then wanting to find your own food. Did you read, was there a book or anything that sort of um, have that thought process or was it sort of natural being up in Alaska and you're like, boy, this chicken's expensive and it comes all the way from, you know, the, the contiguous United States. Like what, what what was the trigger for you, Jesse? Oh, that's tough. I think I would say, Peter, you can start on that one. I, I really, sure. there were no resources that I can okay. remember. Um, I mean, like Jesse said, so we lived together in Vermont for about 11 years mm-hmm. and almost all the food we got, we could walk to. You know, like there was a beef farmer, there was a vegetable farmer, there was a fruit farmer. And like, we'd walk to the farm, not to the market. Um, and that's just a connection that's, that's good to have. And we got here and that wasn't here and it felt weird. Um, and that was part of the getting into hunting. And then the other part was in Vermont, we did a lot of hiking and especially we're backcountry skiers. So when there isn't snow on the ground, we were exploring the mountains, looking for new places to ski in the summer and the fall. So we kept doing that here in Alaska, even though it's not necessary, you can see everything. There's no trees. Um, And we were up one day on top of a mountain and I'd heard about doll sheep hunting before. And like people are really big into it and pay tens of thousands of dollars. And there was this other hike on the mountain. He goes, Hey, look right over there on that peak over there. That's a band of doll sheep. I was like, like, they're just sitting there. Like those (laughs) things that like, they write articles about in like New York times and outside magazine. And like, Mm -hmm. like, it's like, yeah. Yeah, they're right there. You can go hunt them. And I was like, I could be a hunter. Like I never, it had never crossed my mind growing up. I didn't even know a person who owned a gun, let alone had ever hunted. It just wasn't anything that I knew about. And that moment when I was like, oh, I'm in a new place. This is a new thing. I'm in a new culture. I should learn what locals do and what is special about this place. Um, And so that kind of triggered it. And then Jesse said, we were out hiking and our little uh, pound puppy, or not a puppy at that point, he was an old dog, went on point on a bird. And both of us were just like, this is our in. We can get into this through bird hunting. 
we know how to move through the woods. We have a dog that's really well-trained, obedient, um, though not for hunting. And we're like, well, you can just walk to the store and buy a gun here. It's not like New York City. Um, and so we did. <laughs> and we tried it and we got a few spruce grouse and we were hooked. And we're like, oh, yeah, this is how it's going to be. Um, and then I think like a lot of adult onset hunters, uh, we shortly after there found like Steve Rinella's, uh books and read those. Um, you know, reading American Buffalo and Meat Eater, I was kind of like, oh, okay, there's this whole other thing here I didn't understand. Huh. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a wild several years. Um, and uh, yeah, learned so much and, uh, you know, realized that we like missed like 30 years of doing this thing. That's awesome. <laughs> but it's, but now you're consuming it at a fast pace. Are you, have you uh, went after those dull sheep or big game or are you, are you sticking to um, uh, birds for now, Peter? We um, we've put in for some doll sheep tags. We haven't gotten any yet. There are over the counter tags up here. If you're, if you're Alaska resident um, and I might do those, but yeah, we've gotten a few caribou. I got a black tailed deer this year. Um, we got a moose together a year ago, 11 miles back in the back country. Um, that was a fun one. Um, and yeah, we now own two 21 cubic foot freezers in our garage that are completely full of meat. Um, and it feels great. It feels awesome. And I love sharing it with all of our friends, especially friends from New York who come visit. And I'm like, hey, this is what caribou tastes like. And they're stoked. <laughs> That's fascinating. It, yeah. it, Jesse, is there a favorite favorite meat that you've had so far? Oh, good question. Peter mentioned our moose hunt. And um, to digress a touch, uh, it was kind of a maybe a twice in a lifetime tag that we mm. got. And we had spent three days looking for a moose, hadn't really had a, a good encounter and then changed up strategy, went closer to the river, uh, saw one, it was relatively young. Peter will laugh at me. Uh, yep. when I say relatively young. <laughs> uh, it was a tiny little forker. <laughs> And yeah. we we took that opportunity, and the minute uh, Peter pulled the trigger, the you know we gave the animal a little bit of time to go down, and got to the animal, punched the tag, heard rustling in the brush, looked up, and there was nearly a fifty-two inch bull. Oh, oh. he was bigger than that, like sixty-inch oh. bull. Just walked right up like fifty yards away. <laughs> Just laughed at us and walked away. I, I got to see I got to see the video of that. He has a video. He's got this this young bull down on the ground, and then he pulls the phone up, and there's this giant bull moose just across the river, super close to him. Yeah. So I think Bob's question was, "What is your favorite meat?" And the meat from that moose was really tender and good. It mm. absolutely was, and I think that by principle, I have to say that 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 was the best moose because and the best meat because otherwise I'm still in trouble over asking <laughs> him to shoot the first one we saw. <laughs> yeah. But well, we have uh, we have had doll sheep from friends, and Jesse actually um, through work has had some Alaska natives give her muskox, and that is mm. really good eating. Mm. Um, and to bring it back around to birds, um, rough grouse tastes really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, anytime we get some of those on a plate, that's uh, that's a really special <laughs> meal for sure. That gets the good bottle of wine out. Well, you know, I, I had a lot of people tell me that ptarmigan and spruce grouse were not good. And 
I don't agree with that. Uh, Riley, <laughs> Riley cooked both, and and I thought that they were both great. I mean, if you ex- if you eat them expecting them to taste like chicken, you know, yeah. you're you're going to be pretty thrown off. But I thought that they were both delicious. For sure, ptarmigan I like a lot. Um, it eats really well. Um, they eat better the earlier in the year, and you do have to kind of sauce them up. It's a strong meat. Um, spruce grouse. Yeah, that's an acquired taste. <laughs> so our very first spruce grouse we got with um, in the middle of summer and or not the middle of summer, but, you know, the first couple of weeks yeah, of August. hunting season and with our old uh, dog and we, you know, briefly marinated and a little bit of uh, rosé wine and some herbs de Provence and grilled them. And it was amazing. Yeah. Now, looking back, that was probably a that year's bird who had mm. never eaten a single pine needle. Yeah. When they eat pine needles, it definitely changes the flavor. It's mm. nothing that isn't palatable, but it means um, from a culinary perspective, I think we just have to work a little harder um, to accent the meat rather than try to hide it. Mm. Yeah. An August spruce grouse is very different than a March spruce grouse. That's for sure. <laughs> so Emily, I'm really curious. How did Riley prepare it for you? Honestly, now I'm wondering if I, at that point, was just ravenous and wasn't <laughs> anything because she just pan seared it with some yeah. seasoning. I mean, didn't perfect. Didn't marinate it or anything, and. I thought it was great. <laughs> yep. Well, breaking trail in the cold for five hours mm. while hunting can make you eat a lot of things. Yeah, and at that point, I think we were on our fifth full day of, of hunting. For um, sure. So I very well could have just been starving at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so let's it. go. We're giving it a bad rap. Those birds do taste good. but they absolutely Let's go do. there because, Emily, I could clearly see why you invited Jesse and Peter to be kind of on this podcast. They're phenomenal. But I want to go, let's, let's talk about your hunt and then we'll bounce back and get some tips from, from Jesse and Peter about how other people can live the adventure, but live, let's live your adventure first. So March, you start there, like where else can you bird hunt in March? You got, you went to Alaska in March. What, what was that like? It, it was amazing. Um, I had the the best time. It's hard to even put it into words because the whole time I was there, I was just awestruck. Um, and you flew, right? You didn't I drive. Flew, yeah, I flew into Anchorage. Um, I just brought my shotgun. I didn't bring either of my dogs. Um, it was just going to be too much of a hassle. And and mm-hmm. I knew, you know, Riley has a setter, and then Scott Johnson, who we were going to be hunting with has a German short hair and a lab. Um, and then Jesse and Peter both have, or they, they have their, their two GSPs. Um, so I knew there was going to be plenty of dog power. I didn't need to, to take my dogs. Um, and it was kind of nice to just show up and, and be the tourist for once. Um, it was, uh, I mean, everyone was just phenomenal. Um, I borrowed all the equipment I needed and, um, I mean, it was, it was a great experience. Uh, it was a lot of work. I don't think I've 
had to work that hard. These flatland prairies out here really spoil a person pretty quickly. I have never felt like such a burden, not because people made me feel like a burden, but because I just was struggling trying to keep up, you know, learning how to ski. Um, it was not easy and, <laughs> and I was not immediately good at it. So, <laughs> so it was a challenge. Um, I've, felt kind of like a uh, like a new, newborn calf huh. learning to walk for the first time. I think that's probably pretty close to what I looked like, especially when I fell down and, and post-hold through the snow a couple feet. Um, it was a challenge, but it was worth it. So you mentioned sprucies. Did you hunt sprucies and ptarmigans or other, other birds while you were there? Yeah, um, mostly focused on ptarmigan. Uh, from what everyone who I hunted with said, spruce grouse were kind of like a like a bonus um, or a consolation prize, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was very happy with that consolation prize. Uh, they're they're beautiful birds. So beautiful. Yeah. So and they, I always envision ptarmigan which i've never hunted like the orvis sort of picture of you know like orangish red tundra um and you know you get off a float plane and you're walking on sort of sponge <laughs> and then and then spruce grouse which i've actually hunted a little bit in northern minnesota you know you can't hardly get through a spruce forest because it's so thick like i i envision two different areas. Emily, is that, uh, did you find them in the same places? Uh, well, I am going to defer to the experts on this one. Um, I, in the one that, that I shot, it was kind of on our way to a, a ptarmigan spot, okay. but Jesse, Peter. Uh, the first thing I'll say is yes, Orvis catalogs and others will show you the float plane mm -hmm. and whatnot going out there. And I just want to make sure all the listeners know you don't need that to hunt in Alaska. Um, we've never used one. There's so much public land here. You can drive just about anywhere, pull over and get into the mountains and hunt. And that's what's made it so amazing for us. Um, yeah. And then, you know, hunting them on the prairie with the beautiful colors or not the prairie, sorry, the tundra, the tundra with the beautiful yeah. colors and everything. That's pretty short before it snows. So a lot of our season is on skis, uh, hunting that way. And then, yeah, the, uh, there's overlap in the, in the, um, in the habitat. Mostly it'll be, if there's a really big storm, a lot of the ptarmigan can be pushed down lower, uh, into or near the spruce forests. And so, yeah, you can have some overlap in those hunts. Um, but we often get spruces while hiking up to tundra or down from it, um, mm. while we're hunting ptarmigan and that, uh, that goes. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great to get the dogs ready for the day. It's like, all right, they found one bird. We're on the scoreboard. <laughs> Let's go find some time again. <laughs> yeah. um, so Peter, are, I know that you can hunt um, sooty grouse and rough mm -hmm. grouse. Like, do you find all these different birds? And I think they're, what are there, three different types of ptarmigan in mm -hmm. Alaska too? Is it all in the same hunt that you find these birds or is it um, you, you really have to look at the habitat and they, they live in a little bit different places. You want this one, Jess? Oh. They, they can overlap. Absolutely. But mm. that would be a very adventurous hunt to try mm. to get 
all the species in one. Um, even when you come down to ptarmigan, there are rock ptarmigan, willow ptarmigan, and whitetail ptarmigan. Whitetails will sometimes flock up with willow ptarmigan as the winter continues. Rocks will flock up a little bit with willows, but primarily they're more in their own flocks. Hmm. And although the birds at first view in winter all look very similar, they have distinctively different calls and distinctively different um, vocalizations. So it's kind of fun when you're on a hunt and you're looking at a white background and Emily's familiar with this. Sometimes the light can be a little poor. So you're basically inside a golf ball and then you hear that sound. Huh. In regard to uh, spruce grouse, rough grouse, um, sharp-tailed grouse, they overlap some because of forest fires. And mm. as that... Um, as that terrain regrows, it will attract all three species at different times. And, you know, Peter and I are by no means um, masters of this or even experts, but that's what we've found. Okay. Yeah. So we have actually, we didn't get all three of our local grouse in a walk, but we were with friends when they did it. Um, and I think he even got a ptarmigan on that walk too, but that was very rare. Um, sooty grouse, however, only live way down in Southeast Alaska. So we'd actually have to get on like a commercial airplane and go gotcha. fly to Juneau or Ketchikan to get one of those. Um, yeah. And that's a spring bird. I think usually when you go get those, those, what do they call them? Hooters or something down there. Yeah. Um, so I've never hunted for those. Not Which yet. species? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Which species did you see, Emily? So I got to see um, the willow ptarmigan and then uh, spruce grouse. Spruce grouse, okay. Did we get you in any whitetails? I thought we got some whitetails that day, no? Were they I, only those? I think they were all willow ptarmigan, but <laughs> <Entirely possible. laughs> okay. I was just there for, you know, kind of along for the ride. Um, the place we took Emily to often has whitetails and willows, especially that late in the year, intermingling. Mm. But to get the rocks, you have to go way up high in the mountains. And we were hunting in almost a blizzard that day, and that wasn't going to happen. Huh. Yeah, I was just trying to survive that day. Birds <laughs> <laughs> were a bonus. Um, yeah. But speaking speaking of the blizzard conditions that we ran into, um, when we were hunting, it, it was very clear that you guys have an immense amount of respect for the dangers that are out there on the landscape. Um, can you kind of talk about what those are and, and how you've kind of prepared to be ready for those types of challenges? Sure. Um, I'll start. I guess the one good thing, like, so we weren't hunters uh, until very late in life but we were both big backcountry adventurers. Um, so we've done a lot of backpacking trips. We've done rock climbing and we do a ton of backcountry skiing um, and ski mountaineering and glacier travel and that kind of stuff. Um, through that, we've taken several avalanche classes, um, first aid, all that kind of stuff. So our, our confidence level in moving through the backcountry is pretty high. Um, and then all that gets brought to an extreme in Alaska. So yeah, like the day we were at with Emily, there was terrain there that's avalanche terrain. And with the amount of snow and wind that was happening, that's a real thing where we where we mm. go. 
Um, and we've actually had, well, we had two hunters, three hunters buried this year. They weren't bird hunters, but we have had uh, bird hunters buried near us before. Um, I, Jesse and I both volunteer with our local avalanche school. And um, we have actually taught uh, free avalanche classes to our local NAVTA club because uh, we realized that a lot of these guys were hopping on snowshoes and heading up into the mountains without knowing the dangers there. Um, so yeah, it's something that happens in Alaska and probably not too many other places that bird hunters go. Um, it w will a, a shotgun set off an avalanche? No, that's, that's <laughs> something from, uh, no, no, I have no idea. You it's know? a great question because people always question. ask it. Yeah, and that's when you learned about avalanches from like Looney Tunes, where they always do, you know, like they show the bomb and the thing comes down. Right. Um, no, loud noises are not what set off avalanches. Okay. Um, increase in snow load, usually heavy wind or big changes in temperature is what does it. Um, you could go on for years. There's literally uh, PhD programs in snow science you can go do at stuff like uh, it, Montana State University. Um, hmm you know, more than we're going to get into today, but yeah, you don't have to worry about it from shotguns <laughs> or anything like that. And there are some pretty easy ways that bird hunters can, can stay out of trouble. Um, I have yeah, a short hair that, that could, I have a shorter that could set off an avalanche. That's possible. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is a huge consideration. You know, we tell or train or breed these dogs to go mm. out and quest and it is their job to explore our environment in Alaska, they cannot explore that environment without some direction, particularly in the winter and even in the summer with cliffs and um, in our spring, um, you know, with having rivers, with undermining snow, one false step and Ooh. that dog can be under a ton of ice. So it absolutely is a balance. Um, yeah, our dog Olive broke through the ice uh, just a few weeks ago. Fortunately, the river that was like four feet under the ice was only ankle deep on her, but she took a large fall <laughs> when a cornice oh, gave way. Um, we have had a friend lose their dog uh, when it chased a mountain goat off a cliff. Um, oh my! Yeah, gosh. there's there's some stuff up here. This this land wants to wants to not be nice. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it takes dog training and it takes being aware and. You know, for the first half of our season, we carry bear spray uh, on our hips. Um, some of our friends hunt with pistols, bear pistols. Um, neither of us are willing to train enough with a handgun to be good at it. So we use otherwise. Um, let's see, we've run into wolves twice now while hunting. Um, and they, uh, they'll they make a tasty snack out of your GSP. Uh, yeah, it's spicy up here. Yeah, well, I was thinking... <laughs> Like, okay, I had to have my Garmin in reach with me, but, yeah. but then I'm like, for what? It's going to take a person hours to get to me. Is that, is that accurate, Jesse? Like when you're back there, you need to have some skills to survive on your own. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, being new to hunting, when we looked at, for example, something as simple as a bird vest you look at what's on the market and you think, okay, I just have to fit, you know, some water for the dogs and some shells and a few birds. And then you realize you're going in winter, you need at the very least a jacket. You probably need multiple jackets and you definitely need some emergency gear. Um, and inReach is super helpful, but yeah, you need to know your local um, numbers to call because sometimes 
um, the inReach goes to that central distribution. Sorry, I'm on a tangent for a second. Mm. Um, and if you don't give them guidance of, I need a helicopter that's capable of getting a human being out or something like that, it's not really going to help, like you say. Um, in terms of Alaska, we also overlap with trappers uh, quite a bit. And so having... Mm. Um, the utility to be able to get your dog out of a trap, if so needed, is also super important. Um, that and I eat a ton of food, so it's always a struggle to get the amount of snacks that I need in my bag. Uh, yeah, you have to be really prepared. You have to be prepared that you have to be the one rescuing yourself or your dog if something happens, in addition to um, being prepared for the environment. Yeah, our back, our both our vests are are loaded to the brim, mm. um, and we always find it funny when you like you're saying like the Orvis catalog. You look in, and those guys have like two roosters hanging out of the back and a squirt bottle. You're like God, that must be nice. Um, it is. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know we've got gear. Like if if you get hurt out there, you got to spend the night out. And we've got like Jesse was saying, all the equipment to get our dogs out of the various. There's three different kinds of traps up here. Our local NAVDA class or NAVDA group does uh, courses every season um, where they bring out all the traps and teach you how to get your dog out of them. Um, we have had a friend lose a dog to a trap. Um, so you got to be ready for that. Um, there's a lot of gear that we're, that we're always carrying. Um, and it can, it can feel like a heavy load sometimes. Um, yeah. And actually, I bet there's some people on your show that might be looking into hunting an ADAC uh, is a, really fancy place to go ptarmigan hunting. Um, it's one of the furthest Aleutian islands. It's a thousand miles west of Anchorage. It's most of the way to Japan. Hmm. Um, and I went hunting there this past fall and that was a real trip. Cause you know, before you head into the backcountry, they tell you like, uh, if you get hurt out there, don't call, uh, there's no ambulance. There's no hospital. There's no doctor on the Island. There's no coast guard. There's no heli. Nobody's coming. The next commercial flight is in a week and there's no boat. Um, and it's funny, like you walk really carefully after yeah. someone tells you that. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. I, I was thinking during that, like I do a fair amount of uh, cross country skiing into the boundary yeah. waters where, oh, I, sweet. where I need in reach and I'm, out right yep. and i that's out there that's it, for real well it sort of seems like child's play to you too <laughs> and i'm th but i am th jesse when you were talking about like the dogs going into the snow i was thinking about my dogs you know when you're in the uh, boundary waters you don't have to worry about the dogs being on the ski trails right like nobody's yeah. gonna yell at you because you're in the middle of nowhere but it, it's sort of packed down so the dogs can run on the trails when they get sent a bird, right? They, they try to go off and it's probably not Alaska snow, but like right now there's snow is we're recording this April 12th. There's snow up to the waist in mm -hmm. the boundary waters in Minnesota. So, the, so my dogs like will, tr will point from the ski trail and then, and then, you know, they'll try to break and chase <laughs> and they can't, they can't really make any progress. So, you know, you think about Alaska and you got an eight month season and snow is probably on the ground for seven of those eight months. Like how do yeah. your dogs cover ground, Jesse? 
Oh, really good question. So a lot of that is based on our really careful reading of snow conditions and weather. Um, mm. Because a little bit of weather change can make that snow from uh, what's called facets. So that diamond snow that makes a ton of noise, but has no support at all mm. um, to nice, uh, solid wind crust or um, windboard kind of the snow that feels like styrofoam. Mm -hmm. And it makes a huge difference, especially with the dogs we have. My female Olive, she will tend to range about three to 500 yards. And if we have that bad snow, oh, she is working hard and barely making it away from us. Um, I think the other part is getting the, the right breed for that mix um, mm. of snow. Um, yeah, I could go into that a lot of, you know, long hair, short hair. Um, but I think mm. something that is lightweight, um, quick on their feet with larger paws, uh, moves really well in the snow, mm. but a lot of it's pre-planning knowing mm. that up North, uh, they had a windstorm. So that's going to be better for this coming weekend as opposed to down South. Yeah. They're snowing still. And that snow is not going to be easy for us to move around in or the dogs to move around in. Right. Emily, you're no stranger to snow. You grew up in Michigan. You live in, in North Dakota. What was your, what was your impressions of the, the snow component in March chasing ptarmigan and, and spruces? It was, it was shocking. <laughs> I have been around snow all my life, but not that much snow. Um, where we were hunting, Scott was telling us, yeah, this is, we're walking through seeing the tops of trees that are seven, eight, 10 feet tall. And, and you're seeing, you know, maybe, maybe a <laughs> foot of that tree. Wow. And, uh, so that was, yeah, that was pretty incredible. Um, and you're talking about the, the, the different types of, of dogs and um, maybe ones that are a little bit better suited for hunting up there. The day that we all hunted together, one of the, one of the coolest parts of that hunt, in my opinion, was we had two, three, three German short hairs, um, a setter, a golden retriever. And then the day before that, <sighs> and the day after that, we hunted with Scott's lab. So we had six different types of, of dogs out there on the ground, um, or, or six, six different dogs, I guess, out on the ground. Um, and there was at one point where I think it was maybe Olive who went on, who went on point and then Bruce backed her and then Sam backed them and Riker and, um, then the golden yeah, and they all held steady well enough for the golden to make the flush. It was yes. such a beautiful moment. It was. Yeah. It was really incredible. Yeah. That was that was Olive's best point ever. She's like, yeah, everybody's watching me. This is the <laughs> I'm in the front. Star, star of the show. Uh -huh. um, can you tell us a little bit more about your two dogs, Jesse? Yeah, so um, Olive <laughs> is a three and a half year old uh, German short haired pointer from Wydalin Kennels uh, in um, the, the town Mapleton, right, Peter? Yeah, Minnesota? Mapleton. Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. And oh. Bruce is a three year old. Uh, he's a black GSP 
from Outlanders GSP in Thermopolis, Wyoming. Huh. Yeah. And we yeah. tried to find German shorthairs from breeders that were in northern climates, hoping that that would mean they're more rugged or more used to uh, mm. snow. And I definitely think um, knowing now, Bruce has a really thick coat and tolerates the cold a lot better than Olive. And Olive, we put her in a neoprene vest and it works perfectly. So, How'd you arrive at short hairs? Oh, good question. I don't even know that I have a very good answer for that other than those were the first bird dogs I really learned about. And huh. every German short hair I met had the energy level that does the sort of things that we want to do. So we mountain bike, hike, uh, run, cross-country ski, backcountry ski. And every time I saw one of those dogs out on the trails, they always had a little bit more energy. Um, and that really encouraged me to look into the breed. Yeah, I think for for both of us, it was sort of like you read the, don't get this dog unless uh, you like a really high energy dog that needs a ton of miles put on it every day to tire it out. I'm like, yep. Perfect. That's what we do. Hmm. We need a dog that's going to run up and down mountains with us every day. Um, and we do, and it's super fun. So they fit us really well. Do you, um, do you strap like a ski jewer with them or bike with them? Like where they're <laughs> strapped and pulling you? Uh, we tried, we had one good season. <laughs> um, it was really fun because we actually have cross country ski trails right from our house and, uh, and getting pulled by those guys is a blast. But we then, after that season, went into more serious NAVDA training and heel training and a lot more like obedience. And now they they don't feel like doing it anymore, um, which is okay. They hunt a lot better. Olive will pull. Olive loves exercise. Um, and so she's still great at it. Um, Bruce's, uh, I, I can't quite tell if he doesn't like to ski jor or if he just hasn't figured it out yet. But we don't do it a ton with him. Um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about your involvement with NAVDA? Yeah. So with getting um, young bird dogs and us having no idea what we were doing, we looked up all the um, opportunities here. And there are some really great opportunities. There are two NAVDA chapters, uh, Northern Lights NAVDA and Alaska Yukon NAVDA. And we've done uh, clinics with them and done testing with them. There's also um, an AKC group called Arctic Bird Dog. Um, and again, we've done clinics with them. It's been super helpful because, again, we have no idea what we're doing. Um, and we just have a really great group of people who are super patient with us. Um, they mm. get that we've never done this before and they've been really helpful sometimes you can see it on their face that they're like wait what you 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 don't know how to do that okay well let's start from the beginning uh so it's been a huge resource for us otherwise i think we'd be very very lost mm -hmm. yeah nav just taught us almost everything we know it's pretty awesome is it well, um oh sorry go ahead emily Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, your dogs were such a joy to hunt over. I truly enjoyed every minute uh, watching them. And, and it was very clear how much work you've put into developing them. And um, it, 
it was a ton of fun. I can't thank you enough for letting me hunt over them. Wow, that means a ton coming from you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, thank you very much, Emily. They would love the opportunity to have anyone hunt over them <laughs> all day, <yeah>. every day. <laughs> Jesse, is it? Um, it's all. It's like obviously, Navd is pretty pretty active in Alaska. Is in your experience when you're out hunting, do you see more pointing breeds? Or do you see a lot of flushing breeds or is it sort of split? Um, what's your impression of bird hunting, like the general populace in Alaska? Oh, good question. I think that I would split that into what Peter and I see in the terrain that we go into versus what's the norm. And I do mm. think that the norm is much more a flushing uh, okay. dog's world. Um, Peter and I, um, through uh, stupidity, or maybe it's just our, our desire, we tend to go pretty far back. And Emily um, <laughs> was privy to that and, and how far we tortured her along with our hunt. <laughs> um, but with our goals of getting really far off the beaten path, I would definitely say if we, if we happen to run into anyone else, um, A, it's generally someone we know, and B, they have a pointer. I think Ooh, that yeah. our friend Scott Johnson would probably be the um, the only one that I've run into or that I would know uh, getting out into some of those outer reaches with a flusher. Yeah. You know, and as we prepped for this podcast, I asked Emily about, you know, what are some of the her impressions? And one thing that she brought up, like learning to shoot off of snowshoes or off of skis is a real challenge. And like I've tried and I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever hit anything. You, you don't realize like for a general bird hunter, how important your footwork is until you can't. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, I have bird hunted on snowshoes. I have bird hunted on, on skis and, you know, other than, you know, a grouse that flushes into a tree, like on the wing, it's like, I'm probably 0 for 15. So I, I'll, I get the sense like, Jesse, you're the hardcore bird dog person. And Peter is, is maybe really engaged in the skiing piece. So like, how, how did you marry the two shooting off skis successfully, Peter? Um, well, first I'll say I'm a poor shot, no matter what. Is on my feet. Um, like I said, you know, I didn't grow up with guns. I didn't grow up shooting. So this has all been recently learned. Um, but I am, and Jesse is too. She's, we've been skiing together for 23 years oh, wow. now. Um, so we're both super comfortable with skis on our feet. Um, and I will say we use very special skis for hunting. They're not at all like your normal cross country skis. Um, we have special setups that we've made just for us. Um, are they hawks and, like back, like a wider hawk? Uh, they are kind of similar to the Altai Hawk. Altai is the brand, Hawk's the model, um, which is also sold as a black diamond glide light, I think. Okay. And some others. Um, they're a similar shape and size, but we actually use kids' downhill resort skis and we put a ski mountaineering binding on it. And we use a random yay race boot. Um, it's a whole custom mix. And then we have a full length skin. So it's a, a climbing skin on the base that's way bigger than what's on a hawk. Um, 
it's taken us a few years to arrive at that recipe. Um, and Emily did not get to use one of our custom setups. She got our lower skis, just part of the reason why she was struggling. Um, but we've been skiing now, or sorry, we've been hunting now with a bunch of people who have been snowshoe hunters for years. Uh, and they come out with us and every single person that we've hunted with who's brought snowshoes after hunting with us has asked for a pair of skis. Um, and I've hunted on snowshoes and I will never do it again. Uh, that's my bias. Um, so why, so how, how did we marry those two? Um, I think mostly it's just, uh, we're really comfortable on skis. Okay. And so we just kind of started doing it that way. And honestly, we don't know any better to think that it should be easier to shoot because it's like always been hard to shoot for us. So it's, it's just part of the thing, I guess. Um, yeah, maybe someday I'll get good at shooting and then I'll know how hard it is on skis. <laughs> Does that sound right, Jess? Yeah, I would be super curious, Emily, you had the opportunity to do both the snowshoe and the skis, and obviously a little different um, ski setup than what we have, but I'd love to know your impression and what you would choose going down the road for another ptarmigan hunt. You know, I watching you guys maneuver, and Scott maneuver when we were hunting, I mean, you could tell that you guys were extremely comfortable with your skis and made it look so easy. I was not happy <laughs> because uh, it's not as easy as you make it look. So Emily me, was on far inferior skis to us. She was on some rough gear. Yeah. Well, for me, I would, I, after I hunted with you guys, the next couple of days I hunted off of snowshoes and I was more comfortable on the snowshoes just because I felt more steady going up and down hills. Um, when it's flatter ground, skis were wonderful, but you give me a hill the size of a basketball and it was like <laughs> Everest. You know, I just, there was no way I was getting over that. But um, so I was a little bit more comfortable with the snowshoes, but I think it's because I, I was about as green as possible. Um, I had literally never been on skis in my life. So if I had a little bit more experience um, and maybe the, the secret recipe uh, ski, configuration. I'm sure based on watching you guys maneuver around that day, um, that skis would be the way to go. But for me being as, as new as I was, the snowshoes were a relief to, to put on my feet. <laughs> I'd forgotten that was your first day ever on skis. Yeah. You um, did Bob, so well. You know, she was out on a brutal day. We got <laughs> a big mountain in near blizzard and she the was day, oh god the day before <laughs> we were on the opposite side of the road that was a little bit flatter and um you know we were out there for several hours and then towards the end of it scott goes yeah so tomorrow we're going up there and he's pointing like almost straight up i'm like oh <laughs> yeah. okay <laughs> oh. <laughs> sorry there go the dog someone must be at the door bob to give you a perspective um on our way back from our hunt with Emily, we ran into backcountry skiers. So oh, wow. we were hunting in an area where people were actively going out to ski downhill. Um, it was steep, it was uh, deep snow, 
rough terrain to have your first time on skis. So Jesse, you know, as a person who grew up in Vermont, like think about yourself as like a um, 18 year old in Vermont thinking about going to Alaska, right? Like what? So my, my perception is everybody thinks Alaska, you know, in the middle of winter, it's dark all the time. It's like 30 below and it's always snowing and you're going to go bird hunting. Like what, what's the juxtaposition of what's the reality, Jesse, of a bird hunt in Alaska through like eight months of the season when you have snow on the ground? How, how cold is it? How dark is it? Like how much time are you out there? Like what's, what's your, what's your perfect day to be out there bird hunting in the winter? Yeah. Um, so it's funny that you say, looking at my 18 year old self, uh, moving to Alaska, I've actually wanted to be in Alaska ever since I was eight. Um, so it, it's kind of impressive now being here. Um, we have a huge range of length of hunts, um, in general, when you are working throughout the week, you don't really notice the light changes because on the East Coast or in most Northern climates, you go to work and it's dark, you come home True. and it's dark. Um, and same thing here, um, it does get down to about six hours of daylight and the light is a little um, not dim. It's like uh, dawn and dusk light. True. It's beautiful. It makes all the snow light up these beautiful orange and pink colors. Uh, but it also means you don't always necessarily uh, see the little dips and valleys in the snow. And sometimes you can face plant. Um, <laughs> we definitely plan for low temperatures and the wind can make a huge difference. Um, it is a little drier here than what we were used to in Vermont. So 20 mm. degrees in Vermont can feel really cold. 20 mm. degrees in Alaska is warm. Um, and when you're moving around in a pretty, um, uh, consistent pace, you can be pretty warm, but you're generally, you know, dressing a little bit heavier than cross-country skiing, mm. uh, and just trying to stay moving, trying to keep the dogs moving throughout the day. Okay. Um, we have definitely hunted in negative 20. I would not recommend it. <laughs> Uh, Riley uh, lives up north and she has definitely worse temperatures to deal with um, from us. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for us, it usually comes down to it gets too cold for the dogs, not for the human. Um, but yeah, around Anchorage, we're right near the ocean. It doesn't actually get too cold for us. Riley up in Fairbanks, that's legit cold. I, I don't know how she does that. That's just frigid. <laughs> um, you know, and Emily's in North Dakota. That's legit cold, too. Uh, places yeah. away from the ocean. I had to remind myself when I was packing several times that I know how to dress for the cold because I, no. I I was thinking <laughs> like I need to I need to buy a new coat. I need to buy like a winter parka, like something really heavy. And, and then I was like, no, I I probably don't need to. It's because I check yeah. the weather pretty often. Um, Anchorage is is one of my um, cities on the list of cities on my weather app, and it is frequently colder here huh. in North Dakota oh, yeah. than it is in Anchorage. Um, yeah. And when I was there, I mean, the weather was beautiful. It was in the twenties and thirties and sunny. And I mean, it was, it was gorgeous weather. Hmm. Yeah. So, so 
through, um, you know, when we start hunting in the fall, we still have a, a pretty large amount of daylight. So a typical hunt, um, you're not moving for eight hours a day, but you, you are out for eight hours a day in the middle of winter that gets decreased. So maybe your longer hunts are five or six hours. Sometimes it's just two to four hours for the dogs. And then springtime is the magic time because you've got beautiful snow that you can move around on really easily, but the light comes back. And so Ooh. it's not unheard of to spend eight, 10 hours in the mountains um, exploring. Have you noticed any sort of a, uh like um, increased interest in people wanting to come visit you to go bird hunting. Is that, is that changed over the last couple of years? Um, I'll throw it to Jesse again. Oh, good question. So coming from our group of friends on the East coast, nobody bird hunted either. Um, as we are developing friends in this community, absolutely. People are excited to come out and see what it's about. Um, and I would put that, um, invitation out to anyone. Anyone wants to tromp around in the snow with me and my dogs. I am a hundred percent there. (laughs) Emily, Emily, (laughs) how badly, like, is this going to be an every year trip for you, Emily? Oh man. There are so many. Every time I take another trip to a different state to hunt a different species, like I'm going to do this every year. I'm running out of time. <laughs> I'm running out of time this season. <laughs> so um, I guess unless Pheasants Forever uh, doubles their PTO allotment, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to to make this trip every year, but I guarantee I will be making it again. Mm. That's right. Well, Emily, you haven't seen a rock ptarmigan yet, so you should come up early season, like end of August, and we'll, before the snow falls, we'll get you up way high on the peaks in the rock terrain, and that's a whole different thing. It's kind of like uh, chucker hunting. Um, big stuff. I would love Super that. Super fun. Yeah, yeah I, I would love that. So, uh, Jesse, and I, I promise I'll let you ask a few more questions, Emily. Is <laughs> 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 uh, a as is I'm thinking about like so many places nowadays that I want to go bird hunting. I want to do it with my own dogs and Alaska uh, newsflash is a, is a real poke (laughs) of a drive Mm -hmm. from Minnesota or anywhere. Um, But I drove to Southern Arizona last winter. So 25 hours to hunt Mern's quail with uh, my own dogs. And which was wonderful from the perspective of I'm here in this beautiful place with my own pups, but we are hunting canyons and my dogs were quartering back and forth, but did not know to run up and down the canyon. So it was sort of like a nature walk, um, unless, yeah. unless the birds were down in the valley. If, if somebody's thinking about going to Alaska and they want to do it with their own dogs, Jesse, what sort of things should they think about as hurdles for a person coming from Minnesota or Kansas or Iowa or Vermont driving to Alaska with their own pups that are going to be like, ooh, I wish I would have known that before I drove whatever it is, three days 
to get to, to Alaska to bird hunt. Did anything immediately come to mind, Jesse? Yeah, I mean, I would focus on your dog and your strength. You know, because we have such a variety of species, it means if your um, normal hunting is rough grouse in Maine, then think that perspective, um, finding ATV trails, uh, logging roads, going along edge habitat is going to be where I'd start. And you'll find ptarmigan, um, you'll find spruce grouse, you'll find sharp tails uh, along with roughs in that edge habitat. If your dog is a big wide open prairie runner, then wintertime ptarmigan is where I would send you mm. because we need the snow to come up and cover our, our ground uh, for the dog to move around at that kind of distance. Um, but ptarmigan are a lot like, and granted, I don't have great experience with other birds, but ptarmigan are a lot like uh, a prairie bird in terms mm. of some of the areas that you can go to hunt. Um, we don't have to worry as much about conditioning our dog's paws like you would going into the desert, um, but definitely conditioned in terms of uh, they are going to burn a ton of energy moving through the snow. They are going to burn a ton of um, energy just with the cold. Hmm. Um, you know, I took a quick look what would it would be like a 53 hour drive <laughs> to come up here. Um, <laughs> That's it, a... It'd be pretty impressive, but definitely a very worthwhile trip. Yeah. That said, you can also catch a direct flight from a lot of places to Anchorage um, or a lot of places to Fairbanks. So uh, flight's possible with a dog. Yeah, that's uh, true. We certainly that's true. We certainly plan on heading down to the lower 48 and, uh, and hunting down there a bunch. And we're bringing our dogs. Cool. It's yeah. going to happen. I, as someone who also loves to hunt behind my own dogs, um, being in Alaska and it being the pretty extreme environment that it is and being brand new to that species and landscape and everything that, that goes into that hunt, there were a lot of, there were a lot of times where I was glad I didn't mm -hmm. have my dogs with me. Number one, I was able to hunt over excellent dogs, which was a, a huge privilege. Um, so I wasn't missing them in terms of, oh man, this, this dog's terrible. I wish I had my dog, you know, because the dogs I got to hunt over were wonderful. Um, and also it let me just really be present in mm. that moment and not have to worry about is my dog seeing a moose for the first time and getting by it? or, you know, all the, all the different things that they, they might not know to be wary of. Um, it really just took a lot off my plate in terms of things to, to worry about and the hassle of getting them there, whether it's on a plane or driving. Um, yeah, it's great to hunt behind your own dogs, but also, it was a lot of fun just being there and getting to see those birds and getting to see the terrain and, and hunt over other people's dogs. So I didn't feel like I missed out because Bridger didn't, wasn't the one bringing me a, a ptarmigan. <laughs> yeah. But I would love to see the moment when Bridger brings you a ptarmigan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's good perspective though, Emily, because you're right. The first time I ever went to Mern's country, I did do it by airplane without my own dogs and 
And I did make the commitment that time, like, okay, this was awesome. I learned a ton. Next time I'm doing it with my own dogs. But yeah. but you learn well, so much when you're right, like your your point, present in the moment, learning yeah. the landscape and learning it from other experts. And and you get to see dogs that specialize in that type of hunting and, and you see how they work and yeah, you get that experience to where, okay, maybe next time mm-hmm. I went to Arizona this year also and hunted Mern's quail and, um, being able to, I got kind of both, both sides of it where I ran my own dogs, but I also got to hunt over dogs who that's, that's their specialty is finding Mern's quail. I watched, um, my, my friend, Robert poor, his dog, pointed a single Mern's quail in a tree. Um, and I don't, I don't think that my dogs would have been able to find that bird. I mean, that, that was amazing to see mm. that. Um, but that's, that's what she does every day of the season. You know, Robert has her out there hunting her all the time. Um, so it's really cool to, to see different types of dogs and to appreciate um, how they they specialize on those different types of birds that you're unfamiliar with. Yeah, right on. So, yeah, and Emily, you bring up a really good point. Um, tree pointing is uh, definitely a, a learned thing for dogs. And I forgot to mention that part, but um, the first time a young puppy gets that the spruce grouse is up mm. and looks up is just, it's a remarkable thing. Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah, we don't have those trees here. <laughs> <laughs> so it, is that that a pretty common occurrence where the dogs find a bird in a tree and your a lot of your shots, are, you're covering a lot of ground and the, the hard part is getting to them. And the, the, sometimes the shooting maybe isn't as difficult as, say, a rough grouse in Maine through a whole bunch of trees, but like... You're making your way through feet of snow on skis, and then your dog points and the bird's in a tree, so it's a little bit easier shot. Is that does that happen quite often, Jesse? Well, for spruce grouse, they will typically be in a tree. Um, and a spruce grouse that has seen a hunter before, the minute you stop to look for that grouse, it is going to flush. Hmm. Um Emily got the lovely experience of the dog ranging 300 yards uphill and going on point mm. and knowing that that means we've got to get our, our bodies up that hill as quickly as possible because a willow ptarmigan or a whitetail will run. Um, mm. I, you know, I can't compare them to pheasants, but they are definitely runners. And the minute they get that something's pointing them, they will start to run pretty fast and, and relatively far too. One of the most impressive parts of, of watching these pointing dogs is how steady they were. Mm. Because when you're out there, there's not, it's not like the grasslands where those birds are there, but they're in cover and you can't really see them. They're a group of white birds on top of the snow and they're running around a little bit and just kind of sitting there and, um, and I know exactly what my dogs would have done. Richard <laughs> 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 would have seen those things from a hundred yards away and um, yeah, taken off after them. <laughs> so it, 
the the amount of training that goes into a scenario like that where you know your dog is going to be pointing those birds and they're likely going to be able to see them right in front of them and and they have to have that self-control or learned control um, to not rip them until Mm. you get up there. And for someone like me who was struggling on the skis, (laughs) that takes a couple minutes to to be able to get up there. (laughs) So that was, it was really impressive seeing how steady they were and, and how they, I mean, they held solid points until we got up there. Yeah. I'd say this season, especially I shot very few birds that were actual good wing shots. Um, Definitely birds and trees and bushes, that kind of thing. Just that's how it played out. Rough grouse will still be just like that grouse back in Maine. Um, There's a reason why I've shot one in five years of hunting. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The crazy flush at 50 yards out through tight trees. Jesse loves it. Our friend Scott loves it. I let them go do that. (laughs) Um, We have had seasons in the past, like just last year, I feel like a huge amount of the ptarmigan that we hunted were snow roosted. Mm. Um, So those birds, when they, when a storm is coming, they'll pick a spot in the lee and they'll just let the snow blow over them and cover them. And they'll sit there until they think the storm is over. They'll be there for days. Mm. Um, And they'll often just get down in the root system or in the branches of an alder that is actually under the snow. Wow. Um, and if you have a really good dog, and we have a few of them in our group, they will smell those birds under a foot of snow that aren't moving from 30, 40 yards away. And they'll go on point on just a blank canvas. And you're looking in front of you, there's nothing. There's just a sheet of white snow. And you move forward on your skis and they just explode out of the snow. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Mm. It's amazing. It's scary as hell. And then you got to <laughs> find a white bird on a white background in a white sky. And that's wing shooting. That's super fun. Yeah. And if you hit one in that, it's like, it's really satisfying. Um, but I got very few of those this season. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's cool. And if you experience that with ptarmigan hunting, them coming out of just pure white snow, it's really cool. Uh. I can obviously just envision that. That's just a dream scenario. Dogs going on point and you're like, there's nothing here. (laughs) We're just in a flat white field of snow. Oh, that's gorgeous. Until 20 ptarmigan come out of the snow. (laughs) Well, I'm sensitive. I know you both, like we're at a major time difference right now. And and both of you just got home from work. You haven't eaten. <laughs> You've been working all day. And we're talking your ear off because you, you lead such fascinating life um, in Alaska with bird hunting. And, um, I do want to be respectful and sort of wind to a close here. So I'm going to ask for, was that Oliver Bruce? That was Olive. <laughs> so I would take Olive's cue. Olive's hungry. Um <laughs> And and I'm going to ask for your closing thoughts. We'll start with Emily. And before I go there, you know, people are probably wondering, well, boy, what's it cost to go bird hunting in Alaska? And I looked it up. Uh, A resident hunting license in Alaska is only 45 bucks. Most of our audience doesn't live in Alaska. So a non-resident small game, um, which covers the birds we're talking about, um, small game only hunting for the entire season is 60 bucks, 60 bucks to hunt. And and like you mentioned, there's, there's 
rough grouse, sharp-tailed grouse, spruce grouse, a different part of the state, blue grouse or sooties, ptarmigan, yep. you got rock ptarmigan, white-tailed ptarmigan, willow ptarmigan, 60 bucks for the whole year to, to a hunt in Alaska. Um, and there's all sorts of other options, one to 14-day combos with fishing and, and bird hunting. You know, so And they're not exorbitant prices really for the licenses and and emily mentioned like flying up there Uh, emily i think you said you got up there round trip it was like 300 and some bucks right yeah i bought my i i kind of kept an eye on prices and tried to get what i thought was a, a good deal i think my round trip ticket to fly into anchorage and back was 270 dollars wow um and then i because i had incredibly generous people to, to hunt with and stay with. Um, I didn't really have any expenses as far as like hotels and things like that. Um, so that helped a lot, but yeah, I, I think in general hunting in Alaska, um, bird hunting specifically is a lot more feasible than most people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, so I'm going to ask you for your clue, it, but it is my, yeah, that was my perception, right? Like a float plane into the tundra, you know, it, but, but you know, Peter's shaking his head on the screen. He's like, no man, like it's super easy. Public land Even a, and you can find birds. A joker from New York city like me can do it. Any like actual real hunter out there can definitely do that's, it. That's yeah. super Super cool. All right, let's go around the horn. We'll start with with Emily. Your closing thoughts about about the podcast and your trip to Alaska. Oh, it's it's hard to summarize. Um, I think my biggest takeaway from the trip was just meet your friends uh, that you make on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> because it it leads to some pretty cool stuff. I, I, this was genuinely the the best trip that I've ever taken in my life. Um, It it was incredible. I mean, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, Yeah. Meet, meet your internet friends. And you've been consistent with that. Like every podcast, I think the very first podcast, you know, Mm -hmm. you talked about being a mentor to people that are interested in bird hunting and you met through Instagram and you have a, had a goal of introducing 10 people a year to bird hunting and people you don't know at all other than the gram. And here we are again. And the best trip of your life is Alaska through people you've met through Instagram. That's just remarkable. That's very, yeah. Your your turn next, Bob. Yeah, that that's super cool. Um, all right, we'll go we'll go to uh, Peter next, and then we'll let Jesse have the the last words. Uh, Peter, what's your um, words of wisdom for folks um, maybe thinking about uh, taking this trip to to Alaska? What um, what's your closing thought? Well, I'll I'll follow up on what Emily said. I got to say the the first minute I met her, I was like, Hey, Emily, how'd you end up here? And she's like, oh, well, Riley was this person on Instagram. And she said, come up. And so I did. I was like, well, that's kind of ballsy. Yeah. Um, and I was like, right off the bat, super impressed by Emily. Like, holy cow, this she's awesome. Um, 
And so I'm going to try and learn from her on that and take more people up on that in my life. Um, other than that, stuff on hunting in Alaska. I think that Alaska gets this perception of being this huge, rough wilderness. Um, like we were talking about float planes and stuff like that. You can take a commercial flight to Anchorage and rent a car and in 45 minutes be in the Talkeetna Mountains, which is all public and is full of ptarmigan. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you where, but there you go. Um, 97% or something of this state is public land. Uh, you can hunt on almost all of it. Uh, have at it. Come on up. Super cool. Um, the fishing's pretty good, too. <laughs> all right, Jesse, you get the final word. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you both. And Emily, thank you so much for coming up. It was lovely to hunt with you. Um, lovely to meet you. And I would just encourage anyone, you know, make good on those internet friends. Come on up and get out there and explore. Bring your dog. Uh, we'd love to see you. It's a lovely place and there's plenty to go around. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking, you know, an hour of your time right after work to share that your your adventures with us. It's it's super inspiring to, you know, Jesse, as you say, you've since eight years old wanted to live in Alaska. And, you know, I think it's it's just incredible when people sort of like, this is what we're gonna do, and you just make it happen. And that takes a lot of courage. And a lot of people can learn and, and I can see it in your, your, both of your faces, the happiness with that decision is so transparent and clear on your face. And, you know, Bruce and Olive, um, I haven't seen them, but I could tell by, by their enthusiasm during the podcast, they're, they're living their best life too. So, so thank you so much for, for sharing your story with us. It was really, really fun to talk to you tonight. Awesome. Thank you, Bob. Hope we get down to hunt with you. Yeah, somewhere. right. Well, when you come, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, you let me know. And anywhere in the Great Lakes, I've got a, a spot or two we can go. Super awesome. Cool. Same, same with North Dakota. You guys are welcome anytime. <laughs> awesome. You. Thank you. We will take you up on that, both of you. Thank you very much. Right on. Uh, all right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully this has inspired you to... Uh, to plan that bucket list trip, whether it's to Alaska, North Dakota, Maine, wherever it is, uh, you only live once and uh, make the most of it for you and uh, for your bird dog. So uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.